He's an educator. He's a media entrepreneur. He's a new voice on the Tulsa scene speaking out about racial equality, social justice, and educational reform. He's Nehemiah Frank, and he is empowered to lead. Let's meet him on this episode of The Spirit of Leading. I'm Garland McWaters. Nehemiah, welcome to the Spirit of Leading podcast. Hello, how are you doing? Well, it's a wonderful day, and uh, I'm excited to have you here. Uh, Before we really get into the podcast, I do want to say that uh, we're being hosted today uh, by the Blue House Media and its owner, Joel Wade. They've made the studio available for us uh, because it's kind of close to where you work at your Mm -hmm. school. I'm uh, proud to be able to partner with uh, Joel to produce this podcast. Blue House uh, is a production studio, a video production, a recording studio. It's a web design studio and more. So I want to invite our listeners to check out uh, the Blue House uh, if they might have any need for those kinds of services. And you can find them at bluehousemedia.tv. That's bluehousemedia.tv. So thank you, Joel, for making your studio available to us today. Well, you're a fifth grade teacher and co-principal at the Sankofa School of Creative and Performing Arts. And you're the founder and editor-in-chief of the Black Wall Street Times. That sounds like a whole lot of things on your plate there, Nehemiah. Yeah, it definitely is. I have a lot on my plate, but I definitely feel called to do both. So, Well, that's, uh, it's great to have a calling and a real purpose in life. And when we uh, talk about the spirit of leading, we're talking about people just like that who feel like there's a real passion for them to step up and do something in their communities in fact, I say leaders are those people who just look around and see that they're, or the empowered leaders are the people who look around and say, well, something needs to be done. I think I'll take care of that. That's right. And they don't wait for permission. They just go. So it's great to, to uh, be following your, your career and what you're doing with the Black Wall Street Times. And we want to delve into that today. Now, I understand you actually are a Tulsa native. Is that correct? That is correct. I was born in Tulsa, left here when I was six and returned about six years ago. So that's uh, quite a span. Yes. Uh, what, uh, what happened during those years that is uh, noteworthy or do you think really was impactful about your own life? Uh, so my uh, mom, she left here uh, when I was in kindergarten and she ended up meeting my stepfather in Fort Worth, Texas, and he's in the military. So uh, once she married him, we ended up moving all across the country, which is I think it's a great way to grow up because you get to see uh, different perspectives, different parts of the country, um, and you meet a lot of interesting people. So I am, I'm grateful for that experience. I, I think it really helped develop me as a, um, a lover of humanity. I watched a, a, a presentation that you made at a recent uh, TEDx, uh, University of Tulsa presentation about a year ago or so. And there you talked about excellence, and you told a little, told a little bit of about your backstory about how when you were young, mm-hmm. people didn't really give you much of an opportunity to really learn and to, to become proficient and right. you know, literate, actually. Absolutely. What happened to you that, uh, that turned that around for you? Um, well, I'd definitely say probably the college experience. I had a, a professor that was a no-nonsense pre- professor, and she just refused to let me... Um, give excuses for why I wasn't pushing myself. Mm. And so I'm really thankful to her for pushing me and teaching me how to write, you know, at a, at a more proficient level. It takes someone sometimes, doesn't it, to believe in you a little bit and just give you that extra nudge and say, I think you can do better than that. Right. As those uh, experiences relate to your own life, how does that uh, color 
the way that you approach uh, your own experience as a teacher now in the fifth grade? Um, I'm definitely a, a, a little bit more understanding. Um, the kids that try to hide, those are the ones that I really love working with. Um, because, you know, at the beginning of the school year, you can kind of see them not pushing themselves and they're kind of wanting to stay in the shadows. But, um, you know, as the year progresses and we get to know each other and they they begin to trust me, it just kind of we're just kind of pulling it out of them, Mm -hmm. you know, this education. And once you learn to read, you know, no one can take that away from you. Right. Exactly. And that's it it opens up the whole world to you when you're able to be literate in that respect. As you've uh, worked with these young people, have you seen yourself in any of those young people that Absolutely. you've uh, I see with? myself every single day, um, especially in uh, the boys. Some of these kids, they come in at the beginning of the year and they're struggling to read and they don't want to be called on. But I've had a chance to work on many of them or work, work with many of them, you know, one on one. It kind of reminds me of my fifth grade teacher, Mr. Humphreys. I think it's just so interesting that I'm teaching fifth grade and Fifth grade is when I learned to read. Mm -hmm. In the presentation, your TEDx presentation, you were talking about the struggles you had early in life. Yeah. Do you remember how that impacted you back in those days? I didn't have a lot of confidence Mm -hmm. because I couldn't read. Um, Even through high school, I was terrified. I was like, please don't call on me. Please don't call on me. And, um, you know, now it's, I need you to, I need you to read a speech or I need you to read this or and do it in front of a lot of people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> At first I was terrified, but now I'm, I'm used to it. I'm comfortable. You were uh, in Chicago for a while, and, right. and you said, in uh, at least in one article that I read about you, that you... Uh, went to the church uh, where Jeremiah Wright was pastor. Right. And, uh, and I'm, I'm thinking, you know, he's a pretty amazing individual in yes, terms of, you know, his history and his passion and things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, what impact did that have on you? Um, that church, I want to say it changed my life, but I, you know, the older I get, I, I've, I've come to know that everything is impacting our life. But that church definitely had a profound impact on my life. Um, it was the first time in my life where I'd seen that many African Americans that were passionate about education. And that's just something that we don't get, you know, in the community. I think that that's probably the reason why we have so many like African American icons that have come out of that mm-hmm. place. Like, you know, of course, uh, Michelle and um, Barack Obama used to attend there. Right. Oprah used to attend there. Um, the social justice hip hop artist Common currently attends there too. And then there's there's other profound folks. Um, my um, the dean of my college actually attended the church. And then another thing that I loved about the church is just how progressive it was on um, you know social justice issues like um, the LGBTQ community. Um, that's, that was the first time in my life where I'd seen African-Americans actually, you know, embrace, you know, the LGBTQ community. I've never seen that before. Mm-hmm. And so I really, I felt that, you know, they practice what they preach. And then I'm like, you know what, that's where my, my heart is in the same spot. Well, you mentioned that, uh, it was probably in, in while you were in Chicago that yeah. you 
you, uh, the light kind of came on that you wanted to come back to Tulsa. How did that happen for you, and what was that realization like? Right, so that actually happened at church, mm-hmm. too. So I was sitting um, towards the middle, the center aisle, at a, and Dr. Uh, Jeremiah Wright just happened to be preaching. And so he's not like the current preacher of the church, it's right. um, Otis Moss III, but he was preaching that Sunday. And um, I was like, oh, wow, this is such a treat, you know, for him to come. The scripture that he was using was actually in the book of Nehemiah, which I was (laughs) like, oh, wow, this is just, you know, the most interesting thing. You know, what a coincidence. And so whenever he would say Nehemiah, I noticed like some of, you know, the congregants would look around and look at me. And then we all kind of giggle because everyone knew that my name was Nehemiah. Um, But then he started talking about the excellence of the Black Wall Street. And I was just like, oh, wow, you know, this is a great... awesome community and then he said Tulsa Oklahoma and I'm like wow that's where I'm from you know I really hadn't even heard about you know this 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 story of you know resilience in the midst of tragedy and so he actually talked about you know the greatness but then he talked about you know the devastation of the massacre and I'm just like wow I never knew my community had all of that greatness and so that was kind of one of the things that you know, made me want to come back to Tulsa. How, how, how did the Tulsa you came back to compare to the Tulsa you remembered as a child? It was, it, it's so different. I, I kind of see the community coming back now. Um, but I remember that first year I came back and I remember that there was an ice storm and the storm was just so harsh. And besides the physicalness, you know, the physical deterioration of the community, the schools are just in disarray. Um, I was shocked to see that, you know, a lot of these schools are, you know, rated F or D schools. And then the abandoned, the amount of abandoned buildings and homes, you know, I didn't really see a lot of people walking around like they used to back in the day. Like we used to walk to, um, this little store called Nathy's and we would get candy and, you know, it was safe. Um, but I noticed like every time I would come back, um, from living in, you know, my parents, we lived in Virginia at the time. And so I would fly back for the holidays and I just noticed things were just not, you know, looking up. I have seven uncles and out of the out of the seven of them, you know, six of them had been incarcerated. And it's like, oh, well, what did so-and-so do? Well, he stole the television. But so-and-so's been in jail for seven years. How is this possible for him, you know, to steal a television and he's in jail for seven years? It just got worse and worse and worse every mm-hmm. time I would come back. After coming back, uh, I guess your, the, your, your first job here was at... My first oh, job. Okay. Yeah, so um, growing up, um, I started gymnastics when I was like six years old. And... Um, you know, I was able to become an elite power tumbler or an, an elite gymnast. And so um, when I came back, I started coaching. I was like, okay, well, I need a side gig, you know. Let me just kind of fill it out and see what I'm going to do. I coached in college, so I figured, oh, well, I better. That's the first thing, you know, that's my skill set. Let me go coach some kids. And so I did really well. I was coaching in Bixby and Jinx. I remember when I first started working at Sankofa, I told myself, okay, well, I want to um invest in the community but i don't want to just jump head in you know i have to support myself i have bills to pay you're not going to make money (laughs) being a social justice advocate you know so you really have to have the heart for the job and so um i was like okay well i'll be a teacher and i chose sankofa 
because my aunt worked there at the time in the cafeteria. And so I remember my first year, actually, I, I just wanted to be in a, a teaching, a teaching assistant. Um, but the second uh, the director found out that I had a college degree in political science, he was like, oh, no, we're putting you in a classroom and you're going to teach. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, I don't want to teach. But they're like, well, you've coached gymnastics for all these years, so you know how to work with kids and, you know, you're educated. So let's go. So um, I ended up becoming a teacher and I absolutely love it. Um, but I remember one day this little girl named Naya was sitting down and she looked up at me and she said, Mr. Frank, how do I apply for your gymnastics class? And when she said that, I almost cried. I was just like, it was, that question was so heavy for the simple fact that I knew um, how expensive gymnastics was for my parents and for me. Um, you have to pay, I mean, it's like two, $300 a month if you get to the elite level. Mm -hmm. And then you gotta do your privates, that costs extra money. You know, if you want to be good, you're going to have to do, you know, one-on-ones. And then you have to pay for, um, you know, the trips. So it was expensive. And um, I just thought, like, the opportunity. A lot of these kids don't have the, these types of opportunities. Right. And so after that, I think it was, like, a few months later, I just stopped coaching the team that I had built in Jinx. We had another coach come in and fill that spot. And I committed 100% to my community. I think I was kind of already falling into that, but that little girl's question was like the cherry on the top that just said, you know what, you need to dive in, it's time. Mm -hmm. And um, I think it was probably a few months later I had started the Black Wall Street Times. Right. So it's entirely an online publication, as I right. understand. Absolutely. We cannot afford print. <laughs> <laughs> well, fortunately, you don't really need that that yes. badly these days to really have an impact. How did you jump over there and get going on that? Well, um, I had a friend who also attended OSU, and he was a journalist student. He was having, he was African, he's an African-American, and he, so he was having difficulty trying to get a job as a journalist. And um, I just said, hey man, you know, why don't you just start your own, you know, your own thing? And I'm like, hey, I'll do it with you. You know, we're gonna hit some bumps, but it's gonna be okay. We kind of began together, but then I think he just lost interest. And he just, you know, it wasn't really, I guess he just didn't believe that, mm -hmm. you know, it can be something. And so I started working on my own. Um, and then I had a friend of mine's name, Mikhail, who, um, you know, he kind of worked as a consultant, but I don't even know if he, you know, if he really even knew what he was doing because we both really, you know, we weren't journalists. Right. I saw the need of the Black Wall Street Times. I had approached uh, the Oklahoma Eagle, which is, you know, the historic African-American paper here in town. And I told them, I said, hey, you know, why don't you guys get more online stuff and I can help you with that. It just wasn't. I don't know if they were if it was just unfamiliar territory or I was just a millennial, you know, and they just weren't interested in, you know, getting online more. And, you know, I just said, okay, well, I'm just going to go ahead and run with the Black Wall Street Times. And um, I would say it was probably around the time that uh, the Betty Shelby trials right. were taking place mm -hmm. that the Black Wall Street Times just skyrocketed. There was one article I remember um, 
that I wrote, and it was about how the trial was going and um, how, you know, the lawyers and the media were kind of, you know, demonizing, you know, Terrence Crutcher and, uh, you know, out to be this criminal, you know, thug, which, you know, that is not him. Um, you know, he was a father. He was a, 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 a brother, you know, a son and a student, you know, trying to make his life better. And, um, you know, I wanted to defend him mm. in some sort of way. So I was like, okay, I'm going to use my platform to, you know, write an article. The next thing you know, I'm sitting in my classroom the next day teaching and, you know, I'm getting calls from everybody. And I'm like, I'm teaching, you know, all these people are bothering me. Um, but then the principal comes in and he says, Dr. Tiffany Crutcher is on the line and she wants you to come to the, you know, the courthouse and do a press conference. And I'm like, oh my gosh. And then my dad calls me, you know, from San Antonio. And he's like, I just saw you on national television. <laughs> and so the Black Wall Street Times just started shooting up really, really fast. And then I think it was like a few months after that, um, this lady contacted me from NBC. And, um, you know, we had a little conversation. And I remember I was sitting down to dinner at a friend's birthday party. And I looked down, I was like, oh, this can't be real. Like, you know, why would these people be interested? I just started this thing like, you know, a few months ago. There's no way. But I do remember my friend Mikhail saying that I was standing in front of a waterfall mm -hmm. and I really didn't realize how big it was. And that's the experience that I've had since I've started the Black Wall Street Times. So sometimes the right message at the right time takes gets traction, and you know people notice, and they see someone speaking speaking out in a particular for particular perspective that's not being covered, right? And it gets a lot of interest. It's that uh, that voice crying in the wilderness, so to speak. You know, wow, probably, someone yeah. uh, someone really speaking out on something that they feel really is important to say. Mm -hmm. uh, now, how have you been able to follow through with that uh, that kind of publicity to? to perpetuate or to continue to build momentum with what you're doing now? Um, there was this, um, well, this awesome guy named Peter Cunningham, who was the former Secretary of Education for the United States under the, under the Obama administration. And so he kind of caught wind of what I was doing. And um, Pastor Owens, who is a, you know, a great pastor here in Oklahoma, he actually reached out to Peter and said, hey, you should check this guy out, Nehemiah Frank, and what he's doing with the Black Wall Street Times. And I remember I was getting out of research and I was driving my car and Peter, you know, calls me on my cell phone. It was a Sunday. And I'm like, why would this guy call me on a, on a Sunday? This is a business person. And this is like, you know, someone that's worked high up in government. Mm -hmm. Like, why would he even be interested in what I'm doing? And so um, Peter was like, well, you know, I see you're trying to get this thing off the ground. And I'm like, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm trying to get it. Well, why don't you just write me a proposal? And I'm like, what, a proposal, you know, for what? For funding, don't you need funding for the Black Wall Street Times? And so I'm just like, wow, I've never, you know, I never would have even imagined mm -hmm. that, you know, someone would be interested in funding, you know, the type of social justice writing that we do at the Black Wall Street Times. But um, he ended up helping us get a big jump. So do you have some plans on where you want to take it now? And the interesting thing is, is like once I when I started the Black Wall Street Times and it started taking off, I was like, I don't even know what this is. You know, it, I really it really seemed like at times that the Black Wall Street Times had its own like spirit. 
you know, mm-hmm. like its own, um, you know, energy or so. And I'm like, oh, I don't, I don't even know what this is. I really thought that, you know, this should just be a local thing because I'm interested in just taking care of my community, you know, but this, the Black Wall Street Times is, I mean, it's international already. Um, there are people all over the world that read what we're writing. The UK is the second, the second biggest readership that we have and then Canada and then of course Australia. So like, you know, English speaking countries, but, um, South Africa. And I'm like, what would they even be interested in this? And I'm like, Oh, well maybe somebody used it for their apartheid article or something, Mm -hmm. you know, or like study or something, but people are reading it everywhere. And I'm just, I'm, I'm blessed. Yes. I'm I'm impressed. Uh, wouldn't you say it's because, uh, maybe the location Tulsa being kind of in the middle of, uh, sort of, uh, the Bible Belt and right. probably white America. And it's it's all, uh, you know, a lot of good people here, but they have a perspective. They have a background. And, yeah. and, and, and I mean, I grew up in segregated Arkansas. I mean, mm-hmm. I was a military kid like, you know, you were. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so we ended up in Arkansas when I was in my teenage years, and, and it was segregated at that time. Mm. And uh, the schools and the community, basically. And, and it was kind of like I was just oblivious to the black community. I mean, I just... I knew it was there, but I didn't know it was there. Yeah. And it was sort of like I'd never saw it, never really thought about it, didn't mm-hmm. have any negative, you know, ideals about ideas mm-hmm. about it. It just was not there. Yeah. And uh, I kind of get the impression that that sort of is the kind of thing that happened at some point in Tulsa mm-hmm. where uh, it, it was there and there was the 1921 massacre. There was this right. wonderful, rich history of, uh, you know, black entrepreneurs uh, during that era. And it just mm-hmm. all went up in smoke, literally. And, and, and after that, it, people just sort of kind of forgot. Yeah. It was just, just Wait, neglected. Some people wanted to forget. Yeah. yeah. I'm sure, I'm sure yeah. that's true probably too. But, uh, uh, as you've kind of taken on that mantle of being sort of a spokesperson, I know there are others as well who are right. speaking out. Where do you see your voice, uh, compared to maybe some of the others who are also speaking up, uh, to, to, uh, remind people of what that history was and mm-hmm. how we need to sort of. Uh, uh, to, to come to grips with it so that we can move on, you know, and fix some things and move on toward a more equitable and productive future. Right. So um, I definitely would see, I see my voice more on the education, um, the education front, just because I feel like, you know, those kids, they're going to be the leaders of tomorrow. And um, even if they don't become, you know, those leaders, they're still going to be the working middle mm-hmm. class Americans. We hope that they'll become mm-hmm. that. And um, when it comes to rural Oklahoma, when it comes to, you know, poor white kids, when it comes to, you know, black and brown and native kids, like we're, our kids aren't doing well. Someone needs to step up and say, look, at the end of the day, we're all together in this. It doesn't happen in mainstream media. This discussion is boiling on these, you know, these podcasts. They're boiling um you know, and the Tulsa voice and some of these smaller companies like the Black Wall Street Times. So, and I think that there's a hunger for it. Right now, the Black Wall Street Times has, has about, I think, 14,500 followers. But we've had over a million engagements mm-hmm. between the website and the social media. Right. And so that just tells me that, you know, people are reading. They might not like it because they don't want to be found out that they're actually interested in having a real discussion. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's the, you know, the greatest gift of it. It's 
since you mentioned education kind mm-hmm. of is your is your uh, thing, we're talking about uh, upgrading our public education and so forth. You know, Governor Stitt says he wants to make this a priority, and, and of course the teachers are, are, are still uh, asking for not only just better salaries, but yeah. better, a better educational system, actually. Mm-hmm. In a recent editorial, you wrote that as a society, we have to reconcile with our past mistakes. Uh, truth, reconciliation, and sacrifice are the only pathway of making Oklahoma to become a top state for education. We have to be intentional about equity. Uh, what specific reforms would you like to see in our educational system that you mm-hmm. think would have an immediate impact? Right. So I would say um, communities that are dealing with more trauma, and we know that they're dealing with more trauma because of the data, um, these are going to be like low-income communities or mm-hmm. maybe even native communities um, and rural communities because you know if there's less money, people are going to be stressed right. out. And so um, in the classroom, if we know that that's what the data shows, then we should be intentional about making sure uh, class sizes in those communities are smaller Mm -hmm. first. Um, We should make sure that classrooms in North Tulsa are smaller because we know that that community since 1921 and probably before then um, has historically dealt with trauma, you know, domestic terrorism. And so um, that is a community that needs, they need equity. Um, I also mentioned a few days ago on a Facebook post, I'm like, well, what does equity look like in a school? Equity looks like a summer reading program paid for by the tax dollars of, you know, the citizens and in, in these school districts. Hopefully, you know, we would get some sort of funding allocated from, you know, the state. You know, the only way to attack it is to be intentional. And so that means that you know, have a summer reading program. You can have two or three days a week where the kids come in, they get a lunch. Everyone's going to come for the food, of course. I mean, that's how we close these types of gaps. We have to be intentional, and money will be involved. It's a simple fact that you can't have what you can't pay for or right. won't pay for. And yeah. so you've just got to put your money where your mouth is in that respect. And I certainly have seen that in a lot of different areas, and whether it's uh, infrastructure or education or mm-hmm. whatever it might be. And yeah. If you're not willing to pay for it, you just can't have it, period. Right. Yeah. So it has to become a priority. A couple of years ago, I became a little bit more directly involved with our young leaders around the state. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've engaged with them on several occasions, and uh, we've had some conversations about uh, what they see as the things that Oklahoma needs in order for them to be willing to really stay. Yeah. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of talk about wanting to attract our uh, our young young people from around the country to come to Oklahoma to mm-hmm. build their have the families and you know and stay here and make the state uh, prosper and then for them to prosper as well and I mean across the board and absolutely right at the top of the list is educate quality education mm-hmm. and uh, they were just absolutely uh, single-minded when they in single voice when they said if, if we can't have an educational system in our state that my kids can learn in Mm-hmm. And, and prosper and flourish and we're just not interested we're just going to leave and so i take them at their word yeah. that uh, we can't just uh, foo-foo that issue off mm-hmm. and say uh, well oh you know it'll work out well this just won't right and uh, there, but, because there are other states who are who who understand what's at stake and they're going to do it mm-hmm. and if we won't do it then you know oklahoma's going to continue to slide and become a third world country in a sense yeah. uh, because there's not going to be anyone here to to really uh, attract companies who who are looking for educated you know vibrant young adults to fill the positions that they're looking for right 
Joy Hoffmeister, the state superintendent, she just recently uh, invited me to be on her equity council. Um, so I get a chance to go and talk to, you know, talk to her and some other, you know, leaders across the state about, um, you know, what does, what is it really going to take for us to implement equity? Mm-hmm. And so I am convinced that we're going to have to reallocate funding from, you know, certain communities. And I don't necessarily think that everybody's going to like that. I mean, if I was a parent, I'd be like, no way. But it's like, well, you have more. So are we in this together? Are we one Oklahoma or are we like a rich Oklahoma and a poor Oklahoma, a black Oklahoma and a white Oklahoma? No, that's not. We're one. So that's and that will be a a, a shift that everyone was going to have. Like you say, it's going to be a reckoning on that. We're going to have to deal with that. Mm -hmm. As we think about the uh, the future of where the state is going and I know you know you're, you're trying to be a voice in direct that and uh, what's happened to you the last few years as a result of your involvement with the Black Wall Street Times and so forth uh, how has that affected you individually what have you learned about yourself through this process that you think is going to make you a better person or a different person from having gone through um, it? well I it's definitely given me more courage um, you know to not be afraid to, to challenge systems that are bigger than yourself I would definitely say that I've become more um, understanding of the other side. And I would say that, um, hopefully Suzanne doesn't kill me (laughs) that I bring this up, but so Suzanne Schreiber and I have become, you know, pretty good friends. And Suzanne Suzanne Schreiber, you know, she's the former uh, president of the um, Tulsa Public Schools Board of Education. And um, she was one of the votes. She's one of the, the people that voted to keep, you know, Lee on um, Council Oak, and I was just like, how could you vote to continue this icon of you know white supremacy and slavery and not in the 21st century, this is not the Tulsa that I wanna live in. And so um, I did the worst thing. To me, I felt like it was the worst thing. I put her face and you know some other folks' faces on a Confederate flag. Every person that voted, I blasted them. And so, um, I think it was like a ne- the next week or two weeks later, I went to that school board meeting and I apologized, you know, because I was terrified. I was like, mm-hmm. you know, I actually remember praying um, for everyone whose face was on there, you know, but I was thinking about the bigger picture and I was thinking right. about the Tulsa that I wanted to live in. And so, and I also wanted them to be able to really, um, I felt imagery and symbolism was the the way to go. And so I'm like, this is what you're voting for. This is what your vote means. It means this. And so that was the reason why I did it. Sometimes I think maybe I can go back and take, you know, maybe I should go back and take their faces off or just delete that article. But, you know, that article represents growth in myself, growth in, you know, the board members that went back, apologized and changed their minds. and growth for Tulsa as a city, because that article was, I believe that that was the thing that shifted everything. Mm -hmm. Well, sometimes uh, the, the, the pains of that transition and change are obvious, and we sometimes we speak from our passion yeah. And uh, without really 
fully thinking through all the implications of the mm-hmm. things we might say or do at any point in time. Right. I mean, I think we've all done that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, that's something that's a white man I've wrestled with myself. And I, like I said earlier, I grew up in segregated Arkansas. And I can remember the first car I had. I had a Confederate flag on the front bumper because I thought it was cool. I didn't yeah. know what it meant. Right. Uh, but, you know, everybody like was doing that. And I thought, mm-hmm. well, that's kind of cool. So I had little baby moons and all that kind of stuff on an old 54 Chevrolet. And, mm-hmm. and I thought I was pretty hot stuff. And then later on, I realized that, oh, man, that was really kind of like, that's not, that's like a swastika kind of thing, you know, yeah. and, and, uh, and how, uh, how really uh, divisive that symbol was. And I have uh, people who have challenged me about my, my attitudes about how negative I think that flag, that symbol is, that mm-hmm. symbols matter. Yeah, they totally and, do. Uh, and I think some people are just ignorant mm-hmm. of uh, how... Uh, and how complicit they are, maybe unintentionally, but uh, when you when you hold up a symbol that has such a very divisive and negative uh, uh, kind of connotation as as that one actually does, right? I mean, uh, it's you have to sort of call yourself into question and say, okay, I've got to you know really understand this, right? And reconcile myself to mm-hmm. say, oh, well, I just really can't support that. Yeah. Uh, because the people who are the uh, white supremacists and so forth wave it proudly. They do. And display it proudly. Mm-hmm. And so if you associate with that and continue to support that, uh, you simply are saying, well, I kind of like go along. Yeah. And at some point you have to stand up and say, no, that's not me. You got to be Let's educated about the past. Yeah. And I think it's, you know, four million people were enslaved under that symbol. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. 600,000 Americans died Mm -hmm. fighting, you know, to either keep it or eradicate it. Right. And I think probably uh, when we look back at the at our past as as a nation and uh, and the the different uh, the different kinds of uh, experiences people had based on their ethnicity or race or whatever social status uh, experienced that past. If you come from only one sector of that, mm-hmm. you just don't get it. Right. It's just you just can't fully get that. I someone said, you know what it's like to be me, and I said, you're absolutely right. <laughs> I have no idea because I'm not, mm-hmm. and uh, you know I am me. Uh, but sometimes, I mean, I try to understand and I try to be empathetic to that situation, but I right. haven't experienced that, and I just can't know that. So becoming more more aware and open to being willing to understand from a, another person's perspective hopefully helps the healing and the reconciliation that right. has to come as part of that. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so what's, uh, your, what's your uh, immediate plans now? What do you think is going to happen with uh, your educational uh, efforts and uh, in the Black Wall Street Times? Um, well, I definitely think that the Black Wall Street Times is going to continue to grow. Um, I think we'll probably become more of a national you know, publication and uh, continue kind of shining a light on, you know, what happened, mm-hmm. you know, in this community and how it, how important it is to, you know, continue raising the voices of, you know, marginalized groups. Uh, what would you say to other young people who are wanting to find their voice or find a voice uh, for the things that they're, they believe in, they're passionate about and uh, stepping out there? You said you were, you know, courage was something that you yeah. kind of learned. And uh, f- gathering themselves to be able to have that courage to step forward, what would you do to say to encourage them to do that? Um, I would say that we all fall short, and you know, don't be afraid to you know make mistakes. That's a part of the growing, you know, the growing process. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't know who, I don't know if it was Stacey Abrams or maybe it was someone else, but 
you know, the quote goes is we fail forward. Right. Yeah. And uh, one of the uh, one of the quotes that I, you know, told my students every day is, is, you know, if you can't make a mistake, you can't make anything. And so <laughs> you have to be. You know, know that you're going to make mistakes right. and know that it's OK. I still make mistakes. Well, that's important to remember that uh, sometimes we speak uh, in haste and because we have such a passion for a point of view and yeah. then we may unintentionally miss say something or mm -hmm. overstate it or whatever. Right. We have to be just to back, as willing to back up and say, you know, I probably was a little off base on that. Totally. I really apologize. But, you know, uh, my heart's in the right place and I'm trying to do the right thing. So mm -hmm. I think people will get that. Right. So, well, I really want to encourage you on your work and. And uh, thank you so much for taking time to uh, stop by this afternoon and, and uh, visit with me for a few minutes to get to know your work a little bit more, a little bit more about you, mm -hmm. and to say thank you for your courage and thank you for having the courage to uh, be empowered, which uh, I say the empowered are those people who look around and say, well, this needs to be done. I think I'll do it. They don't wait for permission. They don't wait for other people to say, well, I'll go first. They just lead the way. And I also say that a leader is someone who takes us places that we wouldn't ordinarily go by ourselves. Mm -hmm. People looking for people, others to go for, go, to go first. Yeah. And so <laughs> those of us who go first know that we don't always go exactly right, That's but right. we go. And, mm -hmm. uh, and then we're willing to kind of straighten up, you know, correct ourselves as we move forward. But if we don't, then there will be no one to follow. Right. Uh, that's Nehemiah Frank. He is the uh, editor-in-chief of the Black Wall Street uh, Times. Uh, and uh, maybe even more importantly, he's a teacher and uh, is uh, answering his calling to uh, help young people to uh, find their way and to, uh, to receive a quality education under his, uh, under his tutelage and mentorship. And so we thank you so much. Well, thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it. Again, I want to say thanks to uh, Joel Wade and the Blue House uh, Media for hosting us at their downtown Tulsa studio to record this episode of the Spirit of Leading podcast. So when you have a need uh, for video or audio production or for website design assistance, uh, think about giving the Blue House Media a call. You can see more online at www.bluehousemedia.tv. That's www.bluehousemedia.tv. Well, that's it for this installment of The Spirit of Leading. I want to thank you for listening. I also encourage you to recognize and appreciate anyone who demonstrates the spirit of leading at work or in the community. Be watching for the next installment of The Spirit of Leading podcast. You can sign up for the podcast and you'll receive notifications when the next installment is published. You'll also receive links to my empowering thoughts and uh, blog posts. Until next time, I urge you to live empowered each and every day. Encourage the spirit, enliven the heart, enlighten the mind, and enlarge the expectations of living in yourself and in others. I'm Garland McWaters. Music